right this morning, going to be working again through this series that we are calling Rewind. Uh, it's a series in which I'm going backwards through the Gospel of John. And in doing that, in going backwards through the Gospel of John, what we've been seeing as we go through this is the way that John in particular is trying to prepare his disciples and prepare his followers for the cross, knowing that it's coming. So by taking one step backwards at a time, we see all those little nods that Jesus gives towards what it is that he's come to do and the way that his disciples react, ask questions, wonder about, and so often fail to perceive who Jesus actually is and what Jesus has actually come here to do. So today, today as we back up through that, um, it just so happens that we back up to the point where it is the Palm Sunday story. Almost like I meant to do that on purpose. So that's the part of the story that we're at in this. And it comes then to us in John's particular point of view. Now, this Palm Sunday story is a story that appears in all four of the Gospels. And there are, of course, a handful of stories that do come in all four. But this one in particular has a different perspective from each of the Gospel writers. If you subscribe and follow our daily prayer email, Maybe you saw on Thursday this past week, the resource that we sent out with that prayer email was a link to a podcast that looked at all four of the gospel writers in this particular story of Palm Sunday. So even though they all have their own point of view towards what this story means, we're looking today at John in particular. So I'm going to read the story as it comes to us from John, and then we're going to highlight the ways in which John in particular focuses on this story in ways that none of the other three gospel writers do, or at least highlights for us in greater detail things that the other gospel writers don't do. So that, that's going to be what we'll look at in this today, to see where John in particular wants to draw our attention with this story that we celebrate today. So this is found in John chapter 12, and it's verses 12 through 19. Here's what he says. The next day, the great, a great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had to be written about him and that these things had to be done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, 
John in particular with this story. Uh, let's picture the scene, all right? And, and here's what I want to do is I, I want us to back up and go through the story again, and we'll take it a section at a time as we do that. Uh, and do that in a way that shows us something about how John is drawing attention to some particular details, particular details that would be helpful for us to see for what John wants us to see in this story. Because if you notice as we read through this, John inserts a pretty good portion of his own commentary into this, doesn't he? It's not just the detail of, and here's what happened, but he gives a little thought into, and this is what was going on while it happened, as it goes to that, okay? So, first, I want to back us up then and, and look at just the beginning there of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13, okay? The beginning of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. It says this, The next day a great crowd had come for the festival and heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. All right, let, let's spend some time picturing this, okay? The great crowd that is gathered there. So I, first I want to see a, a picture of the map, the layout. This is the layout that shows something of that triumphal entry as Jesus comes in. Uh, and it's Jerusalem, the city that's in the middle there. And then the arrow shows, or the, the line there is the road that comes from Jericho. And that would be coming from the east side of Jerusalem, traveling westward towards Jerusalem. Now, the layout of this is such that, if you can see the map there, the temple is on the eastern edge of the city. So as Jesus is approaching from the east, traveling towards it, that's what would be visible, is the temple, the, the city wall there in the temple. And the way it goes is he comes from, we know that the story before this, Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That's in the town of Bethany, which is just over the other side of the Mount of Olives. It's about two miles away. So I think some of us live more than two miles away from the church that we came to today. But remember, they walk all the places that they go. So this was another town in Bethany where Jesus was. Then as Jesus is on the way, we don't read it here in John, but the other gospel writers tell us that the donkey that he rides is found in the village of Bethphage. So Bethphage is just a tiny village that's almost right at the top of the Mount of Olives as it comes there from the east, traveling west towards Jerusalem. That's where Jesus gets the donkey. Then, if you picture the scene, because the Mount of Olives stands there, and then there is the Valley of Kidron, and then Jerusalem. So from the Mount of Olives, from the top of the Mount of Olives, uh, it's not like rocky mountains. Don't picture it like big mountains like that. This is more like a really big hill is kind of what the picture is for that. Jesus comes up over the crest of that hill, and it would have been visible that you could see out over the Kidron Valley and see Jerusalem there and see the temple, which was on that edge of the city, rising up above that. Jesus would have seen that as he comes over Mount of Olives and down towards the Kidron Valley and then up again into Jerusalem. Now, John gives us the detail here also that the people are gathered for the festival of the Passover. Archaeologists estimate that at this time, the time of Jesus, the population of Jerusalem could have been as large as 50,000 people that lived in the city and kind of surrounded or worked within the city. 50,000 people there. But for a festival like this, the festival of Passover, 
people from all over Israel would make the pilgrimage to come and be there for this festival. And it's estimated that the population would at least double to at least 100,000 people during the festival of Passover. There was not space inside of Jerusalem for that many people. So they come and they gather for the week and they stay there for Passover, but they can't all fit in the city. What happened then was a lot of these people made encampments out around the city, just right on the outskirts. So one of the popular places to do that was the Kidron Valley, that valley between the Temple Wall and the Mount of Olives. Because then you were right there, camped outside the city, right where the temple was, where you go to celebrate Passover. So picture that then. Jesus comes over the top of the Mount of Olives and he, he sees the valley and he sees the city and he sees the temple, but also gathered there would have been thousands and thousands of people who all came to Jerusalem and were making an encampment in that valley, that valley right outside of Jerusalem. So the crowd that's gathered there is a crowd that has come for Passover and that's the setting, if you can picture that. Jesus is riding down into that valley and all those thousands of people are there. John tells us that the word had spread to them of the miracle that he did, raising Lazarus, Lazarus just back over the hill in the town of Bethany. So it's quite a buzz about this guy is coming who did this amazing thing. They all come out to meet him then. That's the setting. That's what you can picture then as Jesus is coming. Now, there's another detail in these verses that John gives us that none of the other gospel writers do. We call it Palm Sunday. John is the only gospel writer who notes the palms. You know, I know in other gospels you read about how they took branches and laid them on the road along with their cloaks, but it doesn't mention what kind of branches. John is the only one that says palms, and maybe for a particular reason. Palm branches had a specific meaning for the nation of Israel at this time. In fact, here's, here's another picture I want you to see. And this one is of a coin, a coin that uh, was minted by the Maccabean people. Let me give you a little history about who the Maccabean people are. Uh, because we don't read about them in the Bible. The reason we don't read about them in the Bible is they lived during the times between the Old and the New Testament. So you don't find mention of the Maccabean people in the Bible because they're in that space of history from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But you can read about it, particularly in Roman history. It's recorded because the Maccabean people are the people who revolted against Rome, wanted nothing to do with the Roman Empire coming in and ruling. If you know your Bible history, you know that you end the Old Testament and there's no mention of Rome. But by the time you get to the New Testament, the Gospels, Rome is there. So all of that Roman conquest of Israel happens between the Old and the New Testament. And during that time, there was a group of people called the Maccabees who resisted. They revolted. A lot of them had to flee the towns and live in the caves south of Judea because they were being hunted by the Roman soldiers. But they were always fighting against Rome, pushing back. And Rome suppressed them to where you don't even hear mention of it by the time you get to the Gospels. It had been stomped out by then. Well, the Maccabeans minted their own coins for the Israelites. 
And they put this palm branch on it because palm branches for them were a national symbol. It meant something special to them as Israelites. I mean, branches maybe do have meaning in some of those ways. I mean, we, we think of meaning in something like an olive branch. You know that an olive branch carries a symbolic meaning. It, it means a symbol of peace. But palm branches meant for the Israelites something different, something more nationalistic. It was a national symbol for them, I think the same way that those of us who are Americans maybe think of bald eagles. You know, when you see some majestic portrayal of a bald eagle, you know immediately, oh yeah, that's a symbol of American patriotism, right? That's how Israelites saw palm branches. It was a symbol of nationalistic patriotism for that. So John is particular and specific. It's not just any branches that they grab and they're waving. He wants us to see it's palm branches because palm branches are the national symbol. It's their flag. I mean, they didn't have nation flags the way we do now, but that was their symbol for their political identity as the nation of Israel during that time. John is setting something up for us here as we see that, that all the people who are gathered there, they have this particular idea of who Jesus is supposed to be and what Jesus came to do when he comes at that time. Now, look at the next thing coming from the end of verse 13. Here's what they have to say. So the crowds are shouting, Hosanna. Let's stop and figure out what that one means. Hosanna. Hosanna is, is an Aramaic phrase, Hoshana. And it simply means, if you have a study Bible, you would see this in the notes. It means, save us now. Or it can mean, help us immediately. That's what they're crying out. Now, this can have a couple of different meanings, and we'll get to that. But look at the context they're putting it in. The next line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118. It comes from the Old Testament. So they're quoting scripture along with this. And then the last line, blessed is the king of Israel. That is not from Psalm 118. They're going off script there. They're putting their own words in this one. So they quote scripture, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they throw a little bit of their own commentary into it. Not only are you the one who comes in the name of the Lord, but we want you to be blessed as the king of Israel. King. Now, you know what? I know in our time, king is something that we talk about in the Bible of King Jesus. And we talk about the kingdom of God. And, and we mean spiritual and theological things by that. But let's remember that during this time, that was a political office. When they, when they say to Jesus that we want you blessed as the king of Israel, and they're waving palm branches... They have a very particular agenda in mind of what they want Jesus to do for them and who they see Jesus being. Because king for them, I think, would have been maybe more associated with terms that we might use as 
senator or president or prime minister. It was a political office. It was a position to hold within a government structure. That's what they mean. And it's not coming from Scripture. They're going off script and throwing this one in themselves. This is what we want Jesus to be. Now, the, the Hosanna piece. Hosanna, which means save us now. Uh, context can put this in a couple different directions. In some places where you find this, it's a plea. A cry for help. Uh, it, it comes as a cry of desperation. Where someone would cry out, we need saving and we need it now. Help us. Come to our aid. Free us. But this same expression could also be used as a celebration. Right? Uh, when you see salvation coming, you know, it, it may be more the expression of, thank goodness we're saved now, which isn't a cry of desperation, but it's more of an exclamation of praise and celebration. I think the context of this story tells us that's where they're leaning, right? That they see Jesus coming. And it's not so much the cry of desperation that they're giving, but it's the celebration of, oh good, our salvation is here. Now we are saved. But the context of this points us in a very particular direction, doesn't it? The salvation that they see coming with Jesus has a very immediate context in their minds, what they think, that it has to do with the Roman Empire and them as a nation, the nation of Israel, and restoring their freedom as a nation from Roman rule. That's what they want. So this, this procession is coming down the road. And then you get to the next piece, right? Here's what Jesus has to do then. Uh, and, and I know the other gospel writers put this like towards the beginning of the story, but John saves it for the middle because he wants this to be a turning point. All right, so we, we hold all of this in mind. The crowd that's gathered there and the palm branches and the declaration that you are going to be blessed as our king. All of that context. And then what Jesus does in verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, on the one hand, there's language of the king in here. We're getting an acknowledgement of that. It's a quote from Zephaniah from the Old Testament. But the donkey that Jesus rides turns the story in a whole different direction. Because during this time, a, a victor, right, a, someone who actually was the political king, Someone who was the powerful conqueror. Someone who would be powerful enough to push back Rome. Someone who would have been that kind of military leader would have come with strength and power. And there would have been examples like this around the time that when, when a powerful military leader like that would return from a conquest, they would parade back into the hometown. And along with the parade, there would be all the spoils of war that would show up. Look at all these things that I have done. Look at all that I have captured. Look at all that I have gained. And that political leader, that king, 
that warrior would have rode into that procession on some strong war horse or in some kind of a fantastic-looking battle chariot. It would have been a show of strength and a show of power. Maybe in our day you think of that as, well, maybe something like the presidential motorcade. Right? When, when a president comes to visit, the whole motorcade lines up and it's the row of all the, you know, the fortified black limousines or SUVs and, and then all of the police cruisers with the flashers on and the motorcycles that go with it and all the Secret Service personnel who are lined up there and the whole thing is this show of force, security, power, might. It's the motorcade that's rolling in. That's what the people expected to see. That they're gathering and they hear the story and they're proclaiming, waving these palm branches. The king is coming, the one who's going to free us. And the motorcade is on the way. And here comes the motorcade. And it's Jesus. And he's in a 1975 Pinto. You know, the kind where you have to crank the window down by hand and there's no air conditioning and it's just an AM radio. That's the scene. That's Jesus showing up. The complete opposite of what they expected in that moment. I could imagine it. People, people who gather there, who, they've heard the stories. Maybe they've never seen Jesus. Maybe they've never met him before. But now they're hearing the stories. This guy, he's the one. They're saying he's the one. And he's coming. He's on the way. Let's go see. Let's go see. And they're lining up. And then Jesus goes by with that ride? What's going on? It would have been enough for a moment of pause, to be sure. A moment of pause where the people would say, wait a minute, something is really out of place here. Jesus chooses to do that intentionally, doesn't he? It's a very intentional choice. And the way John tells it, he sets that up for us perfectly. Everything in the story leading up to this great military leader that they expect to be coming. And then, it's Jesus riding on a donkey. A sign of humility. Poverty. Of a servant. That's how Jesus rolls up. So from there, John gives us some commentary. So here's how the people perceived it then, in this clash of expectations that happened. First, the disciples. That the disciples, when they see it, in verse 16, says this. At first, the disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had to be written about him and that these things had to be done to him. Now, John's writing this. John is one of these people, right? John is putting himself in this group. John is basically admitting to us right here, I didn't get it at the time. I, I was right there with everybody else. In fact, I was one of the inner circle. I was one of the people who was going to follow Jesus right into battle and to be right there with him. That's who I thought I was because that's who I thought Jesus was. But John admits only later, only later did we realize it. 
And what did we realize? We realized that Jesus is not who we thought he was. Jesus is not who we thought he was. Let me jump ahead. Verse 18. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. That's all the crowds that were gathered there, right? Uh, the sign that's being referred to there, it's, it's Lazarus being raised from the dead. So they hear the stories, the stories of this guy can do things like the prophets in the Old Testament used to do. This is the guy that is anointed by God to be God's messenger for us, to lead us, to go before us. That's what they see. They see that kind of a prophet who's come to them, who would lead them to victory. But just like the disciples, Jesus is not who they think he is. That's not what Jesus came to do. Then there's one more, the last verse, verse 19. The Pharisees. So the Pharisees see all of this, and they said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, the Pharisees were not welcoming Jesus in this way. Right? They, they weren't welcoming him in a way of, yep, we want you to be the one who liberates us from Rome. The Pharisees are, they're in a bit of a bind because these are people who, as the way the system goes at that moment, even under Roman rule, they are enjoying a position of privilege, power, wealth, control. Rome let them be in the position of control and power as long as they didn't challenge Rome. That was sort of Rome's way of keeping all of their territories in line. Let's just make sure that who's ever in charge there isn't going to come back on us. So the Pharisees are in that position. They are the top of the heap in Israelite society as long as they don't upset the balance with Rome being there as well. But all this stir about Jesus coming and the way that everyone's trying to welcome him as that political leader who's going to overthrow Rome, they know that's going to jeopardize their own position of power and control and authority and privilege. So for them, for the Pharisees, Jesus is not a political savior. For them, Jesus is a political threat. He threatens them or threatens their position that they hold. But Jesus did not come to be a political hero. So just like the crowds, just like the disciples, Jesus is not who they thought he was. Here's how that goes for John then, because I think John sets that up for us in ways where that's the question he wants to leave before his readers. That he begins his story and then turns it there in the middle with the commentary that he provides just to give us that thought out of this story that maybe Jesus is not who we think he is. That's the point he's trying to get after in this telling of the Palm Sunday story. That 
you know what, I know that in our tradition within Christianity, we see this as the story that kicks off Holy Week. This is the story that's going to bring us to the cross, that we see it as the beginning of that journey of that week for Jesus. But John pulls this story out and he frames it in this particular way because he wants us as readers of that story to go in with this thought in mind. Maybe Jesus is not who we think he is in some of that. I mean, it's certainly all of the commentary he gives in the story, that's what he's pointing out. The disciples didn't get it, not till after it was all done. The crowds didn't get it, they're waving palm branches. The Pharisees didn't get it, they thought he was a threat. Nobody gets it, nobody. That's what John wants to highlight in this story. That's what he's drawing out for us. So we see that come in this. In Luke's gospel, in Luke's telling of this story, it's not here in John, but in Luke, some of the Pharisees who are on the road there among the crowd, they actually come up to Jesus and they tell Jesus, hey, hey, tell these people to quiet down. Knock it off with this shout of Hosanna. Because they saw it as a threat, right? And in Luke's telling of that, Jesus gives a response. If I tell them to be quiet, even the rocks and the stones will cry out. You can't stop it. The rocks and the stones. The very creation itself. The creation itself is crying out, Hosanna, save us now. Help us immediately. The whole world is calling that out. Everyone. It's heard everywhere. I don't know if our world is really all that different, is it? As you go about your daily activities in the world that you live in and you encounter the people that you do as, as you tend to family members who struggle or friends where relationships are breaking. When you read the news or turn on the television, we know, don't we? We know we live in a world that's broken and we know we live in a world that in so many ways is calling and crying out the same thing. Save us. Save us now. And we know we live in a world that is trying all kinds of ways to get at that for our salvation. All kinds of ways to fix it ourselves. Everything that's broken in the world. We do our best at that. And maybe the question that comes before us in this passage is a question we have to consider then. Do we fully understand who Jesus is? Coming into the world that he came in, but also for our world. A world that's searching to fix all that is broken. Do we understand how Jesus has come into that for us? How that story works for us? 
something else that's unique to the Gospel of John here is the mention of Lazarus. None of the other Gospel writers bring that into the triumphal entry story. That Lazarus was raised from the dead. And we're going to get to that in the coming week as we go through this story. But John highlights that too. The whole piece about Lazarus. Because on the one hand, the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead creates the buzz, right? The, the popularity. That's the story everyone hears about, and that's why they all rush out to meet him. But on the other hand, I think John in particular is mentioning this about Lazarus because he's giving us a little bit of a hint here. Lazarus, what happened to Lazarus? Ra Lazarus was raised from the dead. Lazarus gives us the first hint and glimpse at resurrection. John puts just a little piece of that into this story too, doesn't he? Resurrection that's coming. A resurrection that people are flocking to when they hear about it, when they know about it. It's a theme that John begins to weave into this. And within that, within that journey towards resurrection, Jesus very intentionally at this point chooses a posture of humility. Riding a donkey. A posture of humility. One that I think is good for us to note too that posture of humility. Because you know what? This question that maybe Jesus is not who we think he is, I, maybe we look at this story and we think, yep, none of them understood it, but I'm sure glad we get it. I'm sure glad I understand who Jesus is and I understand all that Jesus has done for me. I think it's that posture of humility that John puts into the story that gives us a little bit of a check on that to ask ourselves that question again. Do we really understand and embrace Jesus for who he is, for what he came to do, for what he means for us, how Jesus comes to us that way? So here's, here's how I want us to take that for this week, okay? So we're going into this holy week. It's the week that between Palm Sunday gets us to Easter. And Here's, here's what I would challenge us to do then, that during this week, every time I see a story that reminds me how broken the world is, and you live life and you're going to see those stories every day. Stories in which, you know what, in other situations, we might react to those stories and just nod our head and say, man, the world has really gone in a bad way. Or I wish something would turn around about that. Or things just aren't the way they used to be. I mean, we have all these reactions when we hear and read and tell those stories, right? So every time this week you encounter a story like that of, man, the world is not going the way I thought it should, let's do this. Remember, Jesus took our brokenness to the cross. Catch yourself in those conversations over coffee as you're meeting with people or chatting or reading news articles, whatever that may be, Anytime you catch yourself with one of those moments of, wow, things are just really broken, remind yourself right then and there. And Jesus took our brokenness 
to the cross. Everything that's wrong with our world, everything that's broken, all the illness, sickness, disease, the brokenness of our bodies, failing health, Jesus took that to the cross. All the brokenness of relationships, families, friends, loneliness, Jesus took that to the cross. All the struggles of trying to figure out who I am in this world and the career that I'm supposed to work at or what am I supposed to do when nothing seems to work out and all I see are failures. Jesus took those failures to the cross. Everything that's broken and wrong. Catch yourself this week with the reminder, Jesus took that to the cross. Now, I know that doesn't immediately change anything in the moment, does it? Okay, so Jesus took that to the cross. But there's still brokenness. We still feel it. It's still there. What difference does it make that Jesus took that to the cross? Here's where I have to invite us into the week. Because there's not an answer I can give to that right here now. But as we remember that this week, we have to go through the journey. The journey that Jesus did. The journey of Monday, Thursday, of being in the garden, of being betrayed and arrested. The journey of Good Friday, of the execution, being nailed to a cross. The journey of Saturday, of being dead, buried. And the journey of Sunday, when we arrive at resurrection. I think we need to go through the motions of this week to get a picture of what it means for Jesus to take all that is broken in this world to the cross. So we'll pick it up again next week on Sunday and we'll find that answer of what it means that Jesus has done that for us. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and we acknowledge that just like the people in the Bible, sometimes we have placed demands on you and expectations of you that aren't exactly accurate for who you really are and what you came to do. So God, forgive us when we do that. And we pray in this week then, as we consider all the ways that we are broken people and that we live in a broken world, God, place continually in the front of our minds that you have taken all of that to the cross as we journey through the days of this week to arrive there at the cross. And may that for us point us in a direction that gives hope. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.